For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We've been working our way through John. We've gotten to John chapter 11. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus sort of popping up in the middle of Jerusalem during this feast time, during the festival of booths, uh, and it's been a contentious time. He's sort of been popping up, and the, the Pharisees are trying to figure out what to do with him. They definitely don't like him. They definitely see it as a threat. And so, you know, we've been seeing him popping up in this area, having these incredible teachings. We saw the, the woman caught in adultery, the man born blind. Uh, last week, we talked about the good shepherd, how he shows up, he demonstrates the reality of who he is, does something that... Uh, only God could do, and then accompanies it with teaching that is right in line with what we know about God from Scripture, but is in the face of the religious traditions that have been built up, that have really been leading people astray so that they don't understand who God really is. And so Jesus has been having this, these conflicts with these religious rulers. At the end of John 10, which we studied last week, he talks about everything that he's been doing, and he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe in the works so that you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, these are the kinds of statements that really set these guys off because what he's saying is the Father and I are one. We're made of the same stuff. I am God is what Jesus is saying. And that is demonstrated by the acts of God that I am doing in your sight. And so if my acts are of God, then my teachings also are of God. And you can tell that his enemies understand the claim that he's making. Because he says this, and it says, therefore, in verse 39, they were seeking again to seize him. And yet he eluded their grasp. He's really good at just sort of fading into the crowd and they can't find him. And so he decides to get out of there. We get to John 10, um, verse 40. It says, he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist was first baptizing and he was staying there. Now we've talked before, you know, Israel's not a huge place. And so he's starting down there in Jerusalem and he's making him, his way up to where John the Baptist uh, was doing his ministry, which is up there in a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And it's about a 20-mile walk, which is about, in those days, was about a full day's difficult walk. But um, he, he has to put some distance between himself and the threat. Uh, he's gotten these guys so riled up and so angry. He's like, I got to get out of Judah and get up where, you know, my people are. So he heads up there. And we turn to John 11, verse 1, and we read that a certain man was sick. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, the village that Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord, the Lord with ointment, who wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
And so we know these characters. These are people that come up in, um, in other gospels as well as this one. We particularly know Mary and Martha from the story in Luke chapter 10, right around verse 38, where Jesus is teaching. And Martha is the older sister, and she's sort of, you know, waiting on everybody and cleaning and, you know, and serving. And Mary's sitting there just soaking up Jesus' teachings. And Martha complains. She's like, you know, Lord, tell Mary to help me clean. And Jesus says, Mary's got the, got the right idea. This is more important than that. And so he had this connection with them. He had stayed with them. They were his friends. And they have this brother named Lazarus. And it said that where they are is in the village where they live, which is also oddly called Bethany. So there's Bethany beyond the Jordan. And then there's Bethany which is uh, just about two miles west of Jerusalem. So they're all the way back to where Jesus just came from, in the territory of the Pharisees where they're breathing threats and murder against Jesus. And so they would have sent a messenger, that 20-mile walk up there to where Jesus and his disciples are, which would have taken an entire day just to get there. So he arrives and he says, Mary and Martha have sent me. Their brother Lazarus is really sick. They need your help. They need you to come at once. And we read that when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. A little bit cryptic, a very interesting uh, statement that he gives to this messenger who then heads back to tell Mary and Martha, what Jesus said. So he goes the next day back another 20 miles, back to Bethany to tell them what's going on. And John begins to cue us in. He says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place that he was. And when, you know, I don't know, but I've, I've read this many times, and I've always thought it seems kind of, like a lack of compassion. It seems kind of weird. Like he's hanging out there for two days. There's this desperate situation. But if you follow the timeline, the chronology now, it's been four days since that messenger first left, right? It says in verse 7 that after this, Jesus said to his disciple, let us go to Judea again. And the disciple said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. You're going to go back to that place? We just got out of there because it was dangerous. And now you want to go back? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And all Jesus is saying here is, guys, we didn't do anything wrong. We don't need to be afraid of them. We, everything that we do is out in the open. We're not going to go sneaking around at night and we don't need to worry about this. What we need to worry about is our friend Lazarus. This he said, and after that, they said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen. He said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may waken him out of his sleep. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. Now, this is the kind of thing I just want to point out. There's a lot here that I think has to do with the authenticity, the authenticity of this account. Right? Remember that this is written by John. He was there. He was one of the disciples. He was one of the inner, inner circle. And what he's doing is he's explaining how stupid the disciples are. 
how foolish they are, right? How they just don't get what's going on. And that's important because it's a first-person account. This isn't somebody later painting the disciples in a foolish light. This is one of the disciples saying, I don't know how Jesus put up with us. I just, you know, there wasn't this desire. These guys, at the time that this was written, were the top leaders of the church. And what was going out, the picture that was being painted here was that these guys just didn't get it. And so we read, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking about literal sleep. So Jesus said to them, Lazarus is dead. And they're like, oh, okay, right? And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then we see another one of these comments. Uh, Thomas, who's called Didymus, says, yes, let's go back to Judea so we can die with Lazarus. It's just those points, you know, it's just, this is, this is so human, isn't it, right? They're all sitting up there, they've just escaped, they're feeling like, man, I'm glad, they were probably trying to get Jesus out of Jerusalem for days. Come on, man, we gotta go, they're after us. Jesus is like, just a minute, I gotta go teach at the temple. What? <laughs> teach at the temple? And they're finally out of there, they're finally in a safer place, and Jesus is like, time to go back, and they're like, we're doomed. We're all gonna die. So the chronology here, I think, is important. It says, when Jesus came, he found, so they come down from beyond the Jordan, down to Bethany by Jerusalem. And when they came there, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Now, the reason I've set this up and made it so that we can understand this is, you have day one, the messenger leaves up, walks 20 miles to say to Jesus, Lazarus is sick and they need you to come right away. And by the time they come down, Lazarus has been in the tomb. He's been dead and buried for four days. Now, in order for that to happen, Lazarus would have had to have died the day that the messenger left to go deliver the message. That's the only way that could have happened. So he leaves. Remember, there's no telephone. There's no way of, of getting communication. He leaves. Lazarus dies. He shows up that night on the other side of the Jordan to where Jesus and his friends are. And he's like, come quick. Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha want you to come. And what did Jesus say? He said, this is not going to end in death, but the glory of God. He doesn't say, Lazarus is not going to die. He says, this is not going to end in death. So he stays there. The, the messenger comes back. That would be day two, right? So the messenger leaves day one. Lazarus dies on, on, en route. He delivers the message to Jesus. He receives the new message to Je from Jesus. He comes back the next day. That night of day two, Lazarus has already been dead for 24 hours. And what's the message that Mary and Martha received from Jesus? This does not end in death, but the glory of God. Put yourself in their shoes. You, they've got their brother's cold body lying there. This doesn't end in death, but the glory of God. You know, you'd have to have your doubts. Does Jesus, is, what does Jesus not understand? Is, is, is he really... Not aware that this has happened? That's important for understanding as you read through this story. It comes up several times that he spent these two extra days 
on the other side of the Jordan, but they're not blaming him for not coming faster. Why? Because if Jesus had left the second that the messenger had come to him and come right down to Bethany, Lazarus would already have been dead. It would have been impossible for him to learn of this and come down. And so they are lamenting the fact that he wasn't there, but they are not berating him for not coming sooner. He's been dead four days. And so those extra two days were not significant in the sense that Jesus could have done something. Besides the fact, we know from other accounts that Jesus doesn't have to be physically present in order to heal. We saw it in the case of the centurion's daughter. He says, when you, by the time you go home, she'll be well. And so that whole concept of Jesus had the power to save Lazarus whenever he wanted. Or, of course, God didn't have to let Lazarus die at all. We're dealing with the all-powerful God of the universe here. But this is something that is happening in order to produce an event that will help people understand who God is in a greater way. So we get to 11 verse 18 and it says, now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha therefore, when she heard that Jesus was on his way, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha then sees Jesus and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God will give you. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now, she is raised in a culture where they believe in bodily resurrection of the dead at the end times. And so when he says, your brother will rise again, she says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yes, Lord, I know. This is, this is what we say to comfort ourselves when a loved one dies. We'll see them again. He will be raised on the last day. But <sighs> my brother's gone. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And so she is thinking about this, you know, sort of theoretical future bodily resurrection. And Jesus is saying, I have the power over life and death, I have the cure. For physical death, this situation is not hopeless because I'm involved. Are you willing to believe that, Martha? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. So Jesus has come, but he's sort of outside the town you know, and having these conversations. It says in verse 30, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw Mary get up and go quickly and, went and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. But she doesn't go there. She goes and she meets Jesus. And therefore, when Mary came to Jesus, she saw him and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha had said. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, see how much Jesus loved loved Lazarus. And so this, I think, raises some really important questions that we we have to look at. We have to think about this. Death is a topic that no one likes talking about. We spend so much of our lives avoiding. We try to avoid thinking about death, let alone talking about death. It terrifies us. It grieves us. It's horrible. Death is something that, you know, we spend so much of our time. It is something that we are all destined to die at some point. And yet it seems like most of us spend the bulk of our lives trying to deny and live in denial that it's going to happen. And it bothers me when I go to funerals and when I hear people try to console each other and they say things like, it's, death is just a natural part of life, you know? I mean, I love the Lion King, but the circle of life is crap. That is not how things are supposed to be. We try to comfort ourselves with this idea that, you know, life and death and, you know, we go back in and we're recycled and, you know, this is the way that the world, and we could be comforted by that. This should not be comforting. That sinking feeling of despair The horror that is death is an accurate understanding of the reality of the situation. Death is wrong. Death is horrible. When we lose a loved one, when we lose somebody that we're connected with, that we care about, and we are separated from them, this brings us low, and there's something in our spirit, there's something in the heart of who we are that says, this is wrong. And God agrees 100%. The biblical picture is that we were not designed, and we were never meant to die. Death is the most unnatural thing that can happen to a creature created specifically in the image of the creator God of the universe. Genesis 3, 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is no death in the way that God created us. God doesn't look at death and say, oh, well, you know, that's part of the design. God looks at death and says, oh, man, this went so wrong. These beautiful, amazing, intelligent beings that are the only beings in the universe that are reflective of the image of the eternal God were not and are not meant to die. God said to Adam in the garden, the wages of sin is death. If you eat of this, the, the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. The first time death shows up in the Bible is in association with rebelling against God. God is saying, I'm the source of life. Your life is intrinsically connected to me. And if you separate yourself from me, if you disconnect from me, you're like a lamp that's unplugging itself from the power source. You will lose your life if you rebel, if you commit evil, because I am a perfectly good, perfectly just God, and I cannot associate with evil. I must judge evil, and if you become evil, you disconnect yourself from me, and you lose your immortality. 
Paul put it this way in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We were not meant to die. We were not designed to die. die. Death is unnatural, and it is the result of human rebellion against God. God hates death. He thinks of it and talks about it as his enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die. What's that saying? Adam made the choice to rebel against God. And we all died because Adam as the first person unplugged himself from that source of life. And all the people that are alive today are descended from Adam. And so we are all born disconnected from God because of sin, because of Adam's sin, we are born doomed with a death sentence. But just as all die in Adam, he says, so in Christ, all will be made alive. This is the chance to plug the lamp back in, to be reconnected with the source of life. And that comes through Christ, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits after those who are coming at his coming. Then comes the end. He's just saying Christ will be the first who is resurrected in this new paradigm, in this new way. And then all of those who believe in him will also be resurrected. And at the end of time, when, when, uh, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, when God takes over the whole situation, the whole human condition, For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. God must destroy all rebellion. He must destroy all evil. And verse 26, the last enemy that's destroyed is death itself. God views death as his enemy and he wants to destroy it. And it will be the final foe that is defeated in this entire drama of the human condition. God weeps when we die. He's looking around. Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that Lazarus' death is not this final goodbye that he's never going to be connected with him again. Why does he weep? He weeps because he sees the suffering He sees the suffering of the people that he loves, of the children that he created. He sees them undergoing the grief that we were never meant to go undergo. The loss and the disconnected reality of seeing an amazing being of light, an image bearer of the creator God die is the most unnatural thing. And the suffering that it creates makes God suffer. He is moved when he sees our suffering. When God sees us in pain, he is in pain. If you're a parent, it's not hard to understand. You know, what is more painful than watching your children suffer? You physically suffer when you see your children suffering. And that is what is happening. Why is Jesus weeping? He's looking around and he's seeing the suffering that sin has created, that death, this most unnatural thing, has created, and he weeps for us. And it's important, I think, that we try to access 
this eternal perspective on death because it's so important. At the end of the day, what is a gospel? Why are we here and what are we doing? We're trying to understand who God is and we're looking at God in these human situations and we're seeing how he responds to the things that we go through and we go through losing people that we love. And Jesus looks around and he weeps for them. Now, we hate death because it seems like permanent separation. If you've ever lost someone you love, you know that the really hard part is, is you know that you're not going to see them. If you're a believer and you're hardened in your faith and they were a believer, you can believe and we do believe and we comfort ourselves with the, with the truth that we're going to see them in eternity. And that is very comforting. But if we're honest, we also know, what if that's not true? We wrestle with that. What if, we are, what if we never see that person again? What if, what if that person who I love, that person who I shared fellowship with, who I grew up with, or who raised me, or who was my grandmother, my grandfather, my neighbor, my friend, my brother, my sister, my son, or my daughter, what if they have just ceased to exist? That's what torments us, isn't it? And we have all of scripture and we have all the reason to have hope that that is not the case. But the idea, the thought, the question, did this amazing being just snuff out like a candle? Is that what happened? It torments us because of the sense of great loss of what that would mean. God doesn't hate death because of that. God knows. He totally knows. And he's not cut off from us when we die. God hates death because it's a symptom of the larger problem of sin. God hates death because he looks at it and he says, they died. That wasn't in the plan. That wasn't what was supposed to happen. He isn't cut off from us in death. He doesn't have that sense of loss, that sense of, oh my God, I'll never see them again. What if they are snuffed out? He knows that they're not, and they're with him. No, we're cut off from God, not because of death, but because of sin, because of rebellion. Isaiah 59, verses two or three says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood and your tongue mutters wickedness. The thing that cuts you off from a connection with God are the ways that you treat other people, the selfishness in your heart, the, the greed, the deceptiveness, the selfishness. That is what disconnects us from God, not death, but sin. And so from God's perspective, from the real perspective of the way that the universe actually works, death is not separation from God, but dying without Jesus is true separation. And this bothers God more than anything. What did Jesus say to Martha? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even when he dies. Your body will die, 
but your spirit will live on. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe that the, that the spirit goes on? And if you believe, notice what Jesus says. You have to believe in me. I am the way for your soul to have eternal life. Do you believe this? In Acts 4, Peter stands up and gives a speech and he says about Jesus, Acts 4, 11 through 12, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there was no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is looking at this situation and he is grieved by the death of his friend and he's grieved by the pain that it caused. But he knows that Lazarus believed in him. He is not disconnected. He is not gone. He is not snuffed out. Hell is what permanent separation is. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that Hell is the place where we are truly disconnected from God and from those who love God. Hell is hard to talk about. It's hard to understand. It's, it's somewhat mysterious. It definitely is threatening. It's scary. It's interesting to note, though, that it wasn't meant for us. If you go to Matthew 25, 41, you see that he says that they will be cast into hell, which is the place that was prepared for Satan and his demons. Humans were not intended for hell. It wasn't made for them. We also learned that it isn't what God wants for anyone. 2 Peter 3, 9, he is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of him. God does not want to see us separated from him for eternity. He does not want to be blocked from connecting and relating with us. Hell is hard because it's not entirely clear what hell is. Matthew 22 calls it a place of darkness. Matthew 25 calls it a lake of fire. How do you have fire and darkness together at the same time? Clearly, these are pictures, two different ways of talking about what hell is. You know, we have the image of, you know, the fire and the brimstone and all that. And that is imagery that does come from the Bible. And we can't say it's not that. But we can also say it's not clear what it is. Except for one thing, the most important thing that is clear about hell is it is a place where God is not. The presence of God is not there and nor is the presence of those who love God. It's a place of disconnection. Revelation 20, 14 through 15 says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That terrible imagery, that horrible thought of what is that is what God calls the second death. 
And what's interesting about the second death is everything that we fear, everything that is most unnatural, everything that concerns us about the first death, which is physical death, all of those concerns and fears that we have are not true. It is not the end of our existence. It is not total separation for all eternity from the people that we love. But the second death, spiritual death, it says, is all of those things. This is the death that should really concern us. And it's the death that we should really be concerned about with the people we love because it is separation and it is more. It's worse than that. And it's not meant for us. It's the most unnatural, horrible reality. And it is totally avoidable. It is completely and utterly avoidable. Isaiah 25 verses 8 and 9 says, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He'll remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God in whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord in whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We look at the pain and the suffering of this life. We look at the loss that we incur. We live in an unjust, unrighteous, broken world. And God is waiting on the other side of eternity with a box of tissues to bring us in and say, welcome home. And let's, let's wipe those tears off your face. And let's look forward to a glorious eternity future together where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, and there is life, and there is love, and there is connection, and there is togetherness. And in the meantime, right now is when we have the opportunity to share that future with others. So Jesus looks at what's going on and he feels the weight, the the disconnection of this unnatural event of death and he weeps. And in verse 37, some of them say, could not this man who have opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from also dying? For so much power that Jesus seems to have, couldn't he have done something here? But Jesus, again, being deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it, and Jesus said, remove the stone. Roll this heavy stone that would have sealed this tomb. He says, move it aside. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead for four days. You know, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, they didn't embalm. So there would have been, uh, you know, the natural processes take place very quickly uh, in, a, in a human body. They put oil and they do incense and flowers to cover up the smell. But that doesn't work after about four days. And they're just saying, look, this is, this is gnarly. We don't, we don't, this is going to be bad. Don't, don't do this. 
It's interesting, this four days, Dr. Arnold Fuchtenbaum, uh, in a paper that he wrote about Jesus' miracles, writes, the fact that Lazarus was dead four days is very significant. According to the teachings of Pharisaic Judaism, when a man died, the spirit of the man hovered over the body during the first three days. During those three days, there was always the possibility that recitation could bring him back. On the fourth day, the spirit of man descended down to Sheol or Hades, and from then on, resuscitation was impossible. Only a miracle of resurrection could accomplish this. The fact that Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead for four days showed that they would never be able to explain away the resurrection of Lazarus by claiming mere resuscitation. If you've watched, you know, these, uh, the History Channel and these shows that talk about, you know, in the ancient world, and even a hundred years ago, it was real hard to really figure out, is somebody really dead? And they would even put bells in, uh, in graves so that if somebody wasn't dead, they, could, they, could, they were to wake up in a coffin, they could ring the bell and they would come and quickly unbury them. And the point is, is that, you know, you go back 2,000 years and the idea that they think somebody's dead and a day or two later they wake up was not unheard of. And so they came up with this strange theology to explain that the, you know, the spirit is hovering over the body for three days. But what they're saying is if you haven't moved and you haven't spoken and, you know, you haven't, we can't tell that you're breathing for four days, you're dead. And so... In order to eliminate any question, Jesus waited four days. Jesus says to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they rolled the stone aside and Jesus raised his eyes and prayed. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, his face wrapped around him with cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Again, we see this polarizing reality of this incredible act that only God could do. And there are those who believe and then there are those who run to tell the enemies that Jesus is back in town. The point here though is as we look at death is to understand that Jesus is the cure to this disease. Warren Wearsby in his commentary wrote, if Jesus can do nothing about death then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Death is man's last enemy, but Jesus Christ has defeated this horrible enemy totally and permanently. This idea that we could be separated from one another, that we could lose one another, that there could be such a great love of your life, such a great connection that as we meet one another and as we bond with one another, that those connections are meant to never be broken. They're meant to keep us together in eternity with God. And the cure to this idea that we could be separated and alienated and wallowing in the dark is Jesus Christ himself. 
Matthew 10, 32 through 33 says, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before the father who's in heaven. We are born in sin. We live in sin. We hurt the people that we care about. We lie, we cheat, we steal. We're greedy and we're selfish. But Jesus came and took the punishment that we deserve upon himself so that if we would turn to God and say, I need your forgiveness, let Jesus' death apply to me, death is defeated. We will die a physical death, but not a spiritual one. We will not be disconnected. We will not be without hope. We will be bound to him, to the family of God, and to one another for an eternity future. How do we live in light of this great truth? What impact does this have? Most of us continue to live in fear of physical death. We're so attuned to what our senses show us, what we can see, taste, touch, and smell. We can see a body die. No one has ever seen a spirit cast in hell. And so it's so much easier for us to orient ourselves on the horizontal plane and live as though this life is all that matters. But this life is but the smallest fraction of who you are and what your destiny is and the eternity that you are going to experience moving forward. And yet in this time, in this fraction, in this blink of an eye is the time where we choose connection or separation. It's the time where we can influence others in that decision. And in the light of that, how can fear of what people think hold us back? But it does. It does for all of us. We all wrestle with this. We all don't want to be that person who's just over the top with the Jesus thing. But there is really no over the top with the Jesus thing. If you understand what we're talking about here this morning, there's, there's, there's no urgency. There's nothing that could be more important, nothing that could be more urgent for the people in our lives than to know that they can have death defeated for them? Are we driven by love? Do we look around like Jesus did and see the loss, the pain, the bewilderment, the emptiness, the lack of direction? He looked out across Jerusalem and he said, he, he said, behold, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody's just wandering around not knowing what this life is really about. If only they would come to me, I would bring them in. Do we see our coworkers, our family members, our neighbors through the light and the lens of the truth of the reality of God? Or do we live as though death is the worst thing that can happen? Do we have 
real compassion for those who live without hope is that the second death that drives us more so than the first. In light of that truth, what risks are too great? What cost is too high? What fear could overcome the reality of the difference that we can make in eternity? We'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 58. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this immortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. There is no price that is too high to pay to be used in the life of someone else to help them find their heavenly father and through Jesus Christ. And this we must remember so that we can be steadfast. This life is only a small part of God's plan for us. Why don't we pray? God, we just ask that you would give us eyes to see. Give us your eyes to look around the world and see through your perspective what's happening, what can be done, and what our part in it is. Help us to not see our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers through that horizontal perspective, but help us to see them as incredible, immortal beings bearing your image with immeasurable potential. And help us to see the opportunities that you put in front of us every day of sharing the goodness of who you are. And we pray for this, um, this upcoming Easter as we spend time with our families that we'll be able to make the most of those times with the people that we love the most. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.